0: If you let negativity creep in at any moment, uh, it's, it's really going to set you back if you want to get a good time. And it's also going to take away from your fun. So really learn how to keep a positive attitude is probably the most important thing.
1: Episode 294, we're talking bike packing with the 2017 Tour Divide winner, Brian Lucido. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville.
2: Hello friends, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in again today. Boy, do we have a special treat for you. We have the recent winner of the Tour Divide Race, and this is Brian Lacido. Brian uh, took up biking because he couldn't get a horse, and that led to a lifetime of enjoying biking, and he and his wife do a lot of touring, and his biking resume is extensive, so I want to talk about all of that, but the main subject today is about the Tour Divide race. We want to make sure that you guys kind of get the play-by-play on what that was like this year, so Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you. Brian, how about, just so people get a little context, you're in California. Mm-hmm. and you and your wife, Janet, like to do a lot of biking together, and you use a tandem bike, right? Right, right, yeah. Which is awesome. I want to make sure before the show is over, we talk about tandem biking, because that's kind of unique. It gives, uh, it gives some advantages and some disadvantages that some of our listeners may not know about, so I want to dive into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But before we get into the tour divide, will you tell us a little bit about your, your resume, things that you've done on bikes?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, the first, uh, I first started bike touring with my friend, uh, his name is Dennis, and we um, decided to ride down to Mexico. We had this book that kind of guided us along the way, and we started in San Jose, California. And um, on that first tour, we were on a tandem, actually. It was the tandem I just bought in 1997. And um, we rode, you know, I think it took us like 10 days, and, um, you know, we're camping the whole time, and it was pretty good weather you know for the winter we went down in December and uh, I mean I loved it you know every single minute of that ride um, it was this sense of freedom and um, you know feeling like you could go anywhere you wanted and you know you didn't it didn't really cost much money you know when we were in college you know it was kind of um, you know we we're always trying to save money so um, ever after that I was pretty much hooked and I spent pretty much all of my free time thinking of ways that i could kind of recreate that tour or you know do something else that was had that same kind of experience
2: so i have to ask you know the first ride is the the, the most amazing because right. you know it's your first experience were you ever able to recreate it i know you've had a
0: big variety of experiences since Right. Um, actually, that's a really good question. Um, the truth is probably not. I mean, the first, the first experience is really the most magical one. Um, so, I mean, that was just phenomenal. Um, but you know, really close. And I think the touring has kind of evolved a little bit, you know, in terms of, uh, what I'm trying to get out of it. And so, um, you know, it's not quite the same in like the way you build it up in your mind. But actually, the the subsequent trips I think were also just as rewarding, but just in different ways. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, I think I've started to learn a lot more um, about different cultures, and you know, maybe learn a little bit about the histories of different countries by going, you know, to different places. Um, so it's not quite, it's not all just about, you know, just the freedom of, you know, being out on the road and, you know, you can turn anywhere you want now it's a little bit more also about learning and um that kind of thing you know
2: yeah do you consider yourself more of a a bike touring person or a racer
0: oh definitely a bike touring person
2: (laughs) i knew you'd say that yeah yeah well the the tour divide which i guess it used to be called the great divide mountain bike race right now they're calling it the tour divide did i get that right
0: Yeah, they changed it because um, I think originally it started at the border of the United States and Canada. And if you look at maps, um, it's called the Continental Divide, you know, maps of the United States. But if you look at a map that includes a Canadian map, it's actually called the Great Divide. They refer to that differently. So when they added the Canadian portion, which I believe was like in 2008, maybe um, I, I might not be right about that. They changed the name of it.
2: Well, it's pretty cool. It goes from Banff, Alberta, all the way down to Antelope Wells, New Mexico. So from fairly deep in Canada to the Mexico border. Right. And uh, it's we were kind of talking before here, how long is it really? And, and it's somewhere around 2,800 miles, so 2,800 miles. But you had some reroutes on this trail. Or this right. race, so it's kind of like, well, I don't know how long the reroutes were. I think that from year to year, <laughs> the route might change a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, ideally, what you're going to do is you're going to follow um, the Adventure Cycling route. I don't know if you know about Adventure Cycling, but they're a company based in Missoula, Montana, and they make they make up these routes basically. And so that's kind of like the official route is what what they've dictated. Um, they're not involved in the race really, but um, that's the route that you follow. And then, of course, you know, this year we had to change the route because there was a bridge that had washed away due to all the heavy, heavy snow, rain, um, up in Canada. The, uh, the guy who kind of organizes the race, he, um, he picked a pretty difficult route. And the purpose, <laughs> the purpose of that, though, was to preserve the uh, scenery. Like, they have a really good attitude about it. Um, you know, there, there was the option of taking a paved road during, to, to avoid that bridge. Uh, but you know, if you go on the Facebook pages, he was proposing, well, he didn't go on Facebook cause he's not a Facebook guy, but he basically was proposing this really difficult route over some really rugged terrain. And you go on Facebook and all these people are like, yeah, you know, and they're excited about it. So I thought that was kind of cool because, you know, people are getting excited about a route that's way more difficult than it has to be. Um, it, it kind of gives you an idea of the spirit of the people who are involved in this. Right. Um, I think if you were involved in like any other type of racing, people would be like moaning, "Oh God, you're making it harder," you know. Like, but no, these people wanted to have more adventure, more scenery. Um, it's, a, it's a really good group, you know. Well, this is a self-supported
2: race, and yeah. so it's a it's a bike packing race. That means you're carrying everything with you. Um, what are the rules around that? How much help can you have?
0: Well, none. <laughs> none really. I mean, obviously, so there's. Um, unsupported and then there's self-supported so unsupported means you when you start you're doing everything for yourself and that's obviously impossible to do for 2,800 miles you can't carry that much water so what you do is you are technically unsupported between towns and then when you get to a town you're self-supported and self-supported means that you you know you go to the grocery store you buy your food you fix your own bike. So if you go to a bike shop, I mean, I think technically you're supposed to do the own, your own work on your bike, although I think they're pretty lax about that. Um, you know, if somebody offers you food, it has to be something that's offered to every single racer. So, um, you know, you're not really allowed to, to take stuff from kind of random people. But if it's something that's commercially available, then, yeah, that's that's okay for self-supported.
2: Right. Well, it sounds like an amazing experience, and I, I was reading an interview that was uh, in a blog online, and there was something on there about, you were thinking, well, that would just be a really good way to preview the trail, so we could go back and ride it again later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quite the preview. So you went almost 3,000 miles in 14 days and 22 hours, 45 minutes. That's a pretty quick preview. Holy cow. And how much of it did you miss in the dark?
0: Well, that's a good question. Um <laughs> You know there there were two nights where I rode through the whole night and one of those nights I think I did actually miss some scenery um but you know on the, the I rode through the last night all through the night and I don't think I missed anything um that's through the desert going right. through um I mean it depends some people like the desert I personally am kind of like not super into it but anyway that section I mean all I saw were these bunny rabbits you know running across the road probably every 30 seconds and um you know you had to basically try to avoid hitting them I actually hit one. Oh, um <laughs> it, it just stopped in my headlight and I went thump thump I tried to bunny hop the bunny rabbit but um I couldn't I don't think I really <laughs> I didn't I didn't look back I felt I normally feel really horrible about those things but that particular time I was just like god come on don't be in my way <laughs> but um there was a night you know up in uh Montana? Well, actually, it was through Idaho. Um, I rode through the night, and I kept thinking, you know, hey, you know, this scenery might be pretty good here. Um, but you can't really tell because your lights aren't bright enough to really right. illuminate the, the forest. So, I mean, I probably missed that. Actually, you know what? I saw a guy's pictures. This guy, Ty Dolman, I think his name is. He wrote a really nice blog afterward. And his pictures were actually pretty good through that area. So, I think I did miss a little bit of scenery there.
2: Well... Would you take your wife, Janet, back and do it together?
0: Well, so I've been asking her, and um, there's a couple things. You know, the Grand Apart is pretty awesome because you've got, you know, 200 other bikepackers who are all, you know, really into bikepacking, and it's pretty neat to start with the race, but, um, you know, you have to do it faster than 30 days in order to be considered a racer, if you go slower than thirty days, which is like ninety miles a day, um, then you're you're not considered to be racing. And so I've been kind of checking with her to see like how she felt about that, and she's kind of leaning away from it. She's not like super intrigued by it. You know, she's not a racer, um, but you know, you kind of want to do the grand part to like be with the other people. So, um, well, maybe we,
2: start with them and then just let them go. Right.
0: You know, don't sign up and just say hey. See you guys. You're exactly right. I mean, that's probably the, the ultimate thing to do. Um, I mean, she's, she's kind of interested. She's been studying Spanish a lot. And I think right now her big goals are um, to go to somewhere in Latin America. I think we have plans. To, we don't have official plans, but we're going to start making them to go to Guatemala and um, you know, continue her Spanish down there. So oh, I think that yeah. there's kind of other objectives that are a little bit higher on the priority list right now. Um, but, you know, it is it is really pretty, that Great Divide, and it's, you know, really nice terrain because you can be out there for a really long time, you know, without seeing cars, without kind of the um, the whole civilization thing. Like, if you like backpacking, you know, you can kind of get that sense because you're out in the away from everything for a really long period of time so it's a pretty good route well here's a question for you would you take a tandem bike on this route it sounds to me like that would be really tough but you would no no i totally would um it's actually a really good route for a tandem so a lot of the grades i mean not all of them but a lot of them aren't very steep um which i mean that's kind of the killer on a tandem is when it gets really steep there are a couple sections that you have to walk. Um, there's this kind of section called the, the wall, which is really short. I mean, in comparison to the whole thing, it's really short. It's a steep single track that is really hard to walk up, but you know, it's so short, it's just over. And then, um, you know, the rest of it's pretty, pretty rideable. Um, but it's, it would be a superb tandem course, Mm. especially if you took out that reroute, you know, we got that reroute at the beginning. That was really hard. If you took that out, um, it would be really a fantastic tandem course, and I would love to do it with her. But I want to make sure that she's really into it, also.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. So, describe for us the nature of the trail. I mean, we're talking about nearly three thousand miles
0: of trail, but on average, what's the trail like? Um, I mean, it seems like the majority of the time you're riding on fire roads, and a lot of them are washboards, so it's not you know it's not super smooth sailing. Um, I, I'm shocked. By the fact that a lot of people do it on a rigid fully rigid bike mm, yeah uh, i had front suspension and i would have liked to have had full suspension so we have a full suspension tandem um and that i think is going to start to become more of our touring bike the reason is is because um we, we always find ourselves on dirt roads right <laughs> whenever Whenever we're, we're touring, we're just like, hey, what goes down, you know, what's down there? And, you know, always invariably it's a dirt road. But, you know, the the dirt roads just always look more exciting. So we, we get beat up on our rigid tandem. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no doubt.
2: Well, hey, let's get back into kind of the details of your particular race. I would like to uh, do a play-by-play and see so people get a, a feel for what it was really like. You know, take us there. Then we'll dive back into some of your other exploits on bikes. I mean, you. Uh, let's see, you've, you've crossed the United States from west to east, now north to south as well, and you've uh, been to Colombia to Peru, you've been around Europe, Scandinavia, the Baltics, um, down to Panama, and mm-hmm. you rode through the Andes. Mm-hmm. And so you've done so much touring. I want at the end of the show to cover some of that. But mm-hmm. will you just come back to the the tour divide, and let's talk about – what the, what the first day was like, and then we'll go from there.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, it might be kind of difficult, but will uh, try. Yeah, the first day we, we, we got together, and, uh, you know, we're all gathered out there, and there's this guy named Crazy Larry. Um, you could probably look this guy up on the Internet, but he's – I mean, this is kind of an underground race. I don't know if you, you knew that, but that's probably part of the reason why the website hasn't been updated is they are trying to kind of keep it underground.
2: Yeah, I mean, isn't uh, it, it's it's more of a thing that you show up and and you do the ride, and mm-hmm. it's not really an official
0: sponsored thing. That's right. And in fact, when you're there, they you know everyone calls it a race. You know, there's the GDMBR, and that R a lot of people say is the Great Divide Mountain Bike Race. But um, Crazy Larry reminds you it's not the race; it's the route. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just a bunch of friends riding together is kind of kind of how it works. But, you know, some of us are trying to go faster than others. <laughs> right. So, he um you know, he he's kind of I don't know, this like pep talk guy. And I mean, there isn't really an organizer, but him being there really made it feel organized. So, we're all gathered out there, you know, it rained all night the night before, and we're all probably pretty nervous and um you know, we get out there and the trails are kind of muddy from the night before. And then it starts raining. But, um, you know, it was, it was fun at the beginning cause you know, it was a comfortable pace. In other words, when you take off, you know, in a lot of these races, you know, guys will just like shoot off and, you know, hammer their brains out. But in this race, because it is so long, um, you know, it was comfortable enough pace that I could even talk to people. And so I got to know maybe like, um, a dozen people at the beginning of the race which is kind of nice, you know, to know who else is going to be there. And um, I didn't really get to see them as much, you know, after like the fifth day, I think I didn't see anybody for the rest of the race. so Or maybe fourth day, I can't remember. Anyway, so that day it started raining. And then, you know, we we ended up going through some mud that, you know, is like maybe um, six miles, I think. Maybe it was only three, I don't know. It felt like, you know, 100 miles. <laughs> Just this mud that you, you know, you push your bike a foot and then you clean off all the mud, you know, that's accumulated on your tires. It's like, you know, maybe 20 pounds of mud. And then you push your bike another foot and then you clean off all the mud. You know, it just takes forever. And then, um, you know, after you deal with that kind of barrier, you you know, the mud gets a little bit better. And then, you know, next thing you know, you're on that reroute, which is like a 30 plus percent grade that you're walking. Uh, and it's just, it's just rocks, you know, baby heads piled up and water's flowing down at like a waterfall. You know, your feet are soaked. You're at the top, you're walking through snow and giant puddles. So it's pretty, you know, pretty difficult. Um, but you know, the whole time I wasn't really, um, I didn't let it get me down at all. You know, I think that the other people I saw, um, they were like getting really frustrated with having to walk so much. And, um, I feel like that for me, that was actually a big advantage of, you know, all of the touring that we had done in South America where, I mean, we pushed through mud for, you know, eons down there. Right. So having that experience, I was kind of like, well, this, you know, this is kind of bad, but, um, you know, it's not that bad.
2: (laughs) Well, and you're all at it together. It's not like one racer has a good route, (laughs) you know?
0: (laughs) Actually, that's a really good point. um One thing I was thinking in my head was, you know, boy, this is gonna suck for those guys. You know, rather than like thinking about it is in how it like was affecting me, I was more kind of using it as like a psychological, like, boy, those guys are gonna have a tough time through here. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's that's funny. Well, keeping a good attitude has got to be paramount for a race like this. Um, that's right. You're going really hard. Day after day after day on very little sleep. How much sleep do you think you got on
0: average? Um, actual sleep, probably maybe five hours a night, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I haven't actually calculated it. You could probably, you know, we have all this tracking information. I could probably figure it out. Um, one thing I was doing, though, is because it wasn't quite enough sleep, I was getting drowsy on the bike. Mm. And that's dangerous. So what I would do is um, whenever I felt drowsy, I would just like run off to the side or ride off to the side of the road and just lie down and set a timer. And I found out that um, I would lie there for five minutes. Every single time, it was always five minutes. And I'd wake up after five minutes. I mean, it wasn't really like a sleep, but it was kind of like, you know, you stop thinking about normal things and you kind of have like dream thoughts. Yeah. And... After five minutes, I was good to go for one, maybe two hours. Wow. So yeah. it was just the reset button you needed to press. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So you did this for 14 days, and, you know, there's some other long bike races, maybe not this long, where people, because they're, it, you can do it in maybe five or six days, people are really tempted to only sleep maybe an hour a night. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But mm-hmm. with 14 days, do you think anybody could hold up with that kind of punishment?
0: Well, actually, so remember, um, you know, before the interview, we were talking about records and stuff, right? So there's this guy named Mike Hall, who I don't know if you know this, but um, he tragically died this March in the Indian Pacific wheel race, which is kind of like this, except Australia. Mm. He was hit by a car. I don't I I don't know the circumstances of it. But, um, you know, you can always think because, you know, the death rate in these types of events is actually pretty high like Race Across America, you know, how guys die. Um, Just this year, a guy named Eric was hit by a car in Trans Am. That's the the 4,000-mile one. Right. Um, I don't know the circumstances, but, um, I mean, the way I felt when I was sleepy, um, you could easily see if there were cars out there that I could have maybe, you know, done something stupid and gotten hit by a car. So, anyway, that guy, Mike Hall, he – I studied his – you know, Before the race, I actually studied his uh, GPS tracks pretty carefully. It looked like he was sleeping about three hours a night. Mm. And so he actually rode, like if you look at his speed, his moving speed, he rode a fair amount slower than I did, but he slept a lot less. And so um, that's how he was able to go so fast, you know, or set such a great time, is he could sleep three hours a night. And I bet you there's people, like if you took a race across America, those guys sleep even less. So... There's people that can go on very little sleep.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and that's part of this stuff that I think would be particularly difficult. Um, You you and I were talking about the Colorado Trail race, and I I was sharing that I'd love to do the Colorado Trail, but I don't want to do the race because I do want to sleep. (laughs) I want to enjoy myself, you know? Right. So um, I guess that would kind of be the, for me, that would be the, the big decision point about whether or not to do a race versus just to do
0: a ride. Right and so well the the races i mean they seem kind of um kind of glamorous you know but um i mean i think you're gonna probably have more fun not doing this race but doing it you know as as either a tour or something in between i mean you can still you can still race it and have a great time um you know the 30 day it's basically you're not considered a racer if you're taking longer than 30 days. But if you did 30 days on the, um, certified mountain bike race or route or whatever, um, you'd be doing 90 miles a day and 90 miles a day. You can get plenty of sleep. You know, you can sleep eight hours a night. Um, you know, you can talk to people, uh, which is a fun aspect of the race. Um, you can take pictures. So, you know, somewhere in between, Like what I did, which is, I mean, I don't know, I just it's something that I wanted, you know, to go fast. But I'm not advocating that as like a fun thing to do. (laughs) It was fun, but, you know, it's not the most fun way to experience it probably.
2: Well, you know, 14 days gives you time to know better, right? (laughs) Did you come to a point where you were like, why am I doing this?
0: No, no, never. I mean, I I like it, you know, I, I don't like wasting time. So it's, it's fun to, you know, it feels good to go fast. Um, and also actually one thing about going faster is it kind of allowed me to stay more comfortable because, um, I could go from like a a huge distance to get from one hotel to another. So I stayed in hotels, you know, more than a lot of people because, um, because I could make that leap from one town to another. Right. So that allowed me to get better sleep too.
2: By now you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bent Gate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping, like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. just did the quick math here and you were going on average about 190 miles a day just under that yeah exactly 185 i think and uh that's a long ride now here's the thing going 180 miles on a road bike on pavement is not easy but people do it Mm -hmm. but you're Mm -hmm. not doing that you're on a mountain bike and you're on dirt roads and trails So what does it feel like to cover that much distance, not just once, but day after day after day after day?
0: Yeah, well, it takes a lot of time, you know. So like on a road bike, you know, you could go 200 miles in 11, 12 hours. Right. I mean, some people even do it in 10. You have like a group and a pace line. Uh, But for me, you know, I'm riding like, I don't know, like 17, 18, some days 20 or 24 hours, you know, a day. So it basically just takes more time. But, you know, I'm never really pushing hard, um, you know, rarely out of breath. So it, it doesn't like, it's not like a super taxing thing on your body in terms of uh, cardiovascular effort. It's more of just kind of like a continuous movement type of thing. So by going kind of slowly, um, it makes it more feasible, you know? Sure.
2: I'm still overwhelmed with how difficult it would be. And you're making it sound like it's, it's not that big of a deal, but I know better.
0: This is, <laughs> this is a big you just deal. Go, you go slow and you don't stop.
2: <laughs> right. I think it's the not stopping that would kill me. I mean, your hands, your back, right. your butt. Yeah. I mean, it's got to just be excruciating after a
0: while. Well, your hands, there's not a whole lot you can do about. Um, a lot of people who I've been communicating with uh, have told me that they have nerve damage in their hands. And I have some in my right hand. Um, so that's kind of inevitable. Your butt, you can actually take really good care of. Um, I had this washing protocol, so I'd wash, you know, triple wash my butt every time I went to the bathroom. So I'd like wash it with water, use hand sanitizer, and then put this, um, antifungal on there. So there's stuff you can do. Um, it actually, the race becomes largely about taking care of your body. Mm, interesting really comes down to that i spent a lot of time taking care of my body you'd have to and of course take care of the back too well
2: what about food i mean you're burning a lot of calories for a very long period of time every day did
0: you lose a lot of weight on this race um i don't think so i mean maybe maybe up to 10 pounds it's i, I unfortunately didn't have a scale <laughs> <so>.
2: <laughs> made you pretty easy <laughs> oh, yeah. going about all this um what what was your food
0: how did you stay energized well, it's a little bit complicated, so um, I have uh, type 1 diabetes, and so at home, um, I'll eat a really low-carbohydrate diet. And So at home, I eat a lot of non-starchy vegetables, you know, green stuff, right? and um, stuff that's pretty high in fat, you know, like meat and protein, and I'll eat 100 grams, you know, 50 to 100 grams of carbohydrate in a day. So to give you an idea of what that is, 50 grams is like two slices of bread. Right. In a whole entire day. So it's really low carbohydrate. You know, nobody, very few people eat that low carbohydrate. But when you're racing, um, everything changes. So first of all, I have to inject way less insulin um, because my insulin sensitivity goes way up when I exercise. And um, I have to eat a lot more carbohydrate to deal with that insulin. Um, It's kind of hard to explain, but, you know, like what came first, the, the chicken or the egg. But if, you know, you're putting in like 10 units of insulin, um, you're going to have to eat a certain amount of carbohydrate to kind of deal with that insulin. So right. because most of the food stops are in small towns or like gas stations, I mean gas stations is probably the uh, number one place that you're going to fuel up. You kind of have to get like a list of foods that are compatible. And um, what I was eating – was, you know, those protein bars, you know, like RX, I think they're called and mm-hmm. all the different derivatives of those. I would always go for protein um, because it's really easy to get carbohydrates, right? If you go to a gas station, like 95% of the calories at a gas station are carbohydrate. right But, um, you know, protein's kind of in low supply. So I'd get the, the highest protein um, bars I could get. I'd eat, um, muscle milk, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, anything that was like high in protein. So I'd eat beef burritos. Um, and then of course along the way you could, uh, there were a few establishments that made food and I would call ahead and I would say, Hey, you know, any way you can get me a steak. And so again, you know, trying to really get high protein and high fat and, uh, you know, not so much carbohydrate, but of course you need the carbohydrate just, you know,
2: keeping it in balance. So, yeah. you know, with type 1 diabetes, I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to cover that. There are a lot of people that probably would see that as a huge additional challenge to what you're trying to do here. And I mm-hmm. love it that you're saying, no, no, you can do it. You, you have to just know how to do it. Um, what special approaches did you have to take so that you could do this kind of exercise? And it's a different routine is what you're
0: saying than what you would have, right. you know, every day at home. Right. Well, first of all, I had to do some testing. So, I mean, you're not going to just like show up at one of these races and figure it out when you're out there. So, um, what I did is I did some long rides. Um, diabetes is incredibly complex. Type 1 is incredibly complex. Um, you know, you're, you're taking your life in your own hands with these injections. I mean, um, to give you an idea, uh, the smallest amount that I can inject is one unit and that's about that's like a quarter of the size of a raindrop basically
2: mm.
0: of insulin. And if I'm like sitting on the couch, that one unit will dispose of about ten grams of carbohydrate. So that's like, you know, a quarter of a slice of bread. So right. that one unit will allow me to eat that one like once a quarter slice of bread. But when you're exercising like this, um, that same amount of insulin needs um, you know, 10, maybe even 15 times that amount of carbohydrate. So if I put that insulin in, I can't take it out, right? Right. And I need to have food in my hands in order to, you know, deal with that insulin basically. So you don't want to be injecting insulin and then be like, oh, I ran out of food. Because, I mean, you'll literally die. I mean – one unit, that one unit, that quarter raindrop could lower my blood glucose by about 500 um, milligrams per deciliter. And normal blood glucose is 83. So you die if you hit zero. So if you take 83 and you subtract 500, that's like negative. Ouch. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, you're, you're, so you have to be really careful because you know, normally um, when you're sitting on the couch, that one unit would hardly even affect you. But when you're exercising, it's enough to, to really knock you out. So anyway, um, because you're alone, um, you, know, you really have to kind of err, maybe err also on the side of uh, caution, which means that you're not trying to get normal blood sugars, but instead you try to run a little bit high, which is bad for your long-term health, but it allows you to do these, these kinds of things, right? Sure. So not a lot high, you know, just a little high.
2: Well, in at one point in your race, you had a, a hypoglycemic attack. Right. Um, was, was that because you had a little bit too much insulin or just not enough carbs
0: coming in? What caused that? G- a good question. Um, I actually don't know. Um, I hadn't really been changing. So I'd been kind of on a regimen um, and uh, I, maybe too little carbs coming in, maybe. I might have screwed that up, but you know, I hadn't really changed my insulin injection, so... I, I don't really know you know like I said, also you know type one is incredibly complex, so your sensitivity to insulin can change based on your elevation mm. um it, it and it's not like you know either the remember I told you it could drop you five hundred or it could drop you ten. it's not always five hundred or ten, it could be anywhere in between, right, and so really you know you're you're constantly guessing. And so, I mean, the best thing for a type 1 diabetic to do is to do the same thing every day in terms of their food and their exercise. And that's what I try to do at home. But obviously, when you're in this race, it's hard to do the same thing every day. You can't eat the same thing every day because you can't, you know, you're going to a different store all the time. Right. Uh, And you can't really exercise the same every day because, you know, one day you're doing 100 miles or 150 miles, the next day you're doing 230. So. It's, it's pretty variable, so you really have to kind of be on it, and, and you're making an educated guess about how much to inject every single time. It's Ugh. just an educated guess. That's, that sounds actually very scary to me. Um, it's a little scary, but you have to remember that you, know, you, you always carry emergency food, so you're carrying a carbohydrate-rich source that, like, oh, I'm going too low, boom, eat that food, you know? and right. then you'll be okay.
2: Well, I think it's cool that you found a way to do this. And I think it's a neat example to let other people know that it is possible. Um, Right. How long did it take you to sort out how to manage the diabetes
0: when you're doing Um, this kind of exercise? I'm still figuring it out. (laughs) Still figuring it out. I mean, I read a lot about diabetes all the time. I can get anything I can get my hands on. And I have kind of um, an understanding of how it works, I think, maybe a little bit more than what they tell you, like the doctor tells you. Right. So I think that's important because when you are making that educated guess, um, I think that, you know, to have a little bit of science behind it, um, I think that really helps. And so I think… Like if anybody who is listening does have type 1 diabetes um, and they really want to try to do something, uh, you know, and in, in increase their health, um, there's a lot of excellent information on the internet. There's also a lot of terrible information on the internet. Mm. Um, I'm lucky, you know, I studied biology. I only have an undergraduate. But um, it really helps me kind of differentiate, you know, what, what I'm reading is factual and you know, what to be skeptical of, you know.
2: Well, I I like your example that you're still finding a way to to get out and do all this stuff. And you know, you've done a lot of long rides, not just the you know, the Great Divide tour divide race. And so I guess you probably were able to hone your techniques and your your habits on all of these rides. But yeah, I you know, I just keep thinking I I love the idea that someone that's challenged with diabetes can do this stuff but how do you safely learn how to manage it you have any advice for people i mean building knowledge you said that study Uh, it understand it but is there any
0: anything else that they really need to know um well you know diabetes behaves differently in different people so, tell you the truth, I think it really does come down to studying and experimenting. Um, I think the best thing you can do, though, when you're experimenting is to take small steps. In other words, you know, if you're going to change your insulin dose, uh, do it in really small, you know, baby steps. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be making big changes fast unless, you know, unless there's a really good reason to. Because you can, I mean, you really can do something dangerous if you make a radical change. Right. Um, I, I tried, you know, just switching the time of day that I injected my uh, basal insulin. You, know, you have different kinds of insulin, and one of them is basal that lasts 24 hours. Um, and and making that changeover was like really painful on my body. Um, I had lots and lots of hypoglycemia during that transition. I did it too fast. So, but um, you know, people—if people do have type one diabetes—you um, know, sometimes I think. I mean, I was really depressed when I found out for like a week, but um, if you really think about it, you're kind of fortunate in, I mean, of all the diseases you can have, um, because in this year, you know, 2017, it's pretty much entirely treatable, you know, so you can, if you're willing to put in the work, and it's a lot of work, you know, because every time you eat, you have to do something, but if you're willing to put in the work, you can basically not have any problems.
2: Well, I have to share with you that uh, both of my grandparents on my father's side died of diabetes, and I, I've seen firsthand what can happen when it's not treated properly. I love what you're doing, you know, saying, yeah, yeah you can manage this. This is something we can do.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's entirely, I mean, both type 1 and type 2, especially type 2, are, um, you know, through changing your diet and... Um, you know, obviously, for type 1, you have to really figure out your insulin dosing. Right. And then, of course, exercise, um, you know, the jury's kind of out as to whether or not exercise is good for type 1. But it's absolutely crucial for type 2. Um, I think everyone agrees on that. I think it's good for type 1 personally. I think it really helps me. Um, the more I exercise, the less insulin I have to inject. And, um, there's a lot of science out there right now that says that the less circulating insulin you have in your body, um, the lower your risk for pretty much cancer and all sorts of diseases. Um, having a lot of insulin circulating in your body is not a good thing. A lot, a lot of research papers have come out pretty much saying that. So, Mm. um, exercise reduces your insulin requirements pretty much across
1: the board.
2: Yeah. Well, that's fascinating stuff.
1: If you're enjoying the Adventure Sports podcast with episodes twice a week and want to help support the show and keep it going, go check out our ASP member deal site. For as little as 4.95 a month, you can enjoy some adventure discounts while supporting our cause. Go to members.adventuresportspodcast.com and sign up for a monthly plan at 4.95 a month or save a little with the annual plan and get your free 180 stove. Thanks for listening, guys.
2: Let's jump back into the race. Just a few highlights. Can you tell us a story about one of your favorite experiences on the race?
0: (laughs) Well, my favorite experience was, um, when I finished, my sister was there with her family and, um, you know, you're kind of emotional at that point because you have a lot going on in your head. And I actually had, um, kind of, uh, I had a thought run through my head that she might be there right near the end, which is really strange, you know, it wasn't until the end. And I said, I wonder if they're going to be there. And I don't know where that came from. Um, like almost like uh, an aura or something. I don't really believe in in that, but you know, the fact that it popped into my head and I started thinking, you know, maybe like an hour to go, I started thinking, Oh, they're going to, what if they're going to be there? And then, um, I said, no, they're not going to be there. You're getting all excited about this for nothing. And I actually started crying a little bit at that point, you know, with an hour to go. And um, then I got there and they were there. And it was pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, I I can't tell you how happy I was to see them. They were, it was a great surprise. But um, in terms of the race, I mean, the whole thing was just awesome. You know, it was just, it was just fun to be out there. I mean, it's always fun to be out in in nature. And, um, it's hard for me to think of like even a single moment that was better than another, you know, it's just even, I was having fun even in the rain, um, which is a little bit unusual for me because, um, you know, I used to really hate the rain, but I don't know. I really, I was really having
2: a good time even then. So do you have any special memories about people that you met along the way on the great divide race?
0: Yeah, um, actually, the the people were probably the one of the most fun things. I I should earlier, but um, they were, you know, meeting these people. Um, I really wanted to stop and and spend more time with them. Um, there was there was Kathy and Stan at the uh, at Pie Town. They had this place called Pioneer, um, which is like super popular because I guess they were on the news, and uh, she told me that they um. they were called by a newscaster and they said, Hey, is it going to be okay if you, um, if you guys, uh, do an, like an interview with us? And, and she said, yeah, sure. And, uh, they said, you know, you do know that you're going to get a whole lot more business. And she said, that's fine. And so now they're like overwhelmed with like pie requests.
2: <laughs> that's great.
0: Yeah. But anyway, Kathy and Stan, um, they were super awesome. They, you know, I wanted to spend the whole afternoon talking to them and you know, I, because I was racing, I had to say, "Hey, I gotta, I gotta get going," you know. So, probably spent like I don't know, twenty minutes talking to them, and they were super nice, you know. But there's, there's a whole ton of places. Um, there's Kirsten at the um, Brush Mountain Lodge in Colorado, and she is like a super big tour divide enthusiast, um, and you know, they're all watching the dots. Um, basically, you know, you have a tracker on you, so they can see you coming, and they know when you're coming, and so she's there, and you know, she's like super excited and saying all these encouraging things, you know, and you just want to spend all this time talking to them. But, you know, because it's a race, you know, you, you end up like spending way less time than you should have, which is actually a reason to tour it instead of racing. Right. Uh, Because you get in these places and you have these great conversations with people and you want to, you want them to keep going. You know, you don't want to just like run out of there. So... I, I'm actually a pretty big advocate of, of touring it <laughs> instead of racing it. Uh, <laughs> because you, you, do, you do miss a lot, you know.
2: Yeah, that's really cool. I, we've heard from a lot of people that whatever the sport is, it's, it's often more about the people that you meet along the way. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, neat. Yeah. Do you have a, a story about a
0: particularly low point, something that was hard? Um, well, I think I told you about the hypo, but um, that, that was a low point. One night, I I rode all through the night. It was like on night five or six or something like that. And riding through the night's a bad idea unless it's like the last night. Um, you right. really need. I think you really need your sleep. So what happened is um, I rode through the night and it was actually really high. I was feeling so great. I'm like, yeah, I'm riding through the night. I'm getting ahead, and that was great. And it's really fun riding at night. But then, um, kind of the next morning, and I started to feel a little bit tired. And then, you know, you keep going and it's like afternoon and I just I really lost a lot of motivation because I was so tired. And that's when I started doing the cat naps actually. Yeah. And so those helped a little bit, but I found myself lingering. Um I actually met a guy who was doing the Trans Am race. What happens is um our rate, our route intersects with their route, you know, because they're going east to west and we're right. going north to south and they run about the same time. So I met a guy there and we were chit chatting and I don't know, I was just kind of like losing time. Um, I wasn't really motivated to like move, move, move and talking to that guy and just kind of, um, stopping in a lot of places. So anyway, that was kind of a low that the, the second half of that day. So I would advocate to anybody is, um, get your sleep. <laughs> you know, it's interesting.
2: You would say that we, uh, we interviewed Yari Kirkland Hyatt about an adventure race that her team won. And mm-hmm. when they started the race, they all got a, a stomach flu and mm-hmm. they got really sick. And they ended up having to get more sleep for two or three nights than they ever anticipated. Mm-hmm. And so they were way behind. The other mm-hmm. teams, you know, were going on a minimum amount of sleep, like 90 minutes a night. But in the end, they won the adventure race. Uh-huh. And I said, you know, I'm not so sure that the sleep deprivation works. You guys might be the proof. You could go harder and stronger during the day because you had to rest more at night. Right. But I don't know what that strategy might be, right? I just know that a lot of these endurance racers really push the sleep window. Right. And uh, it sounds like for you, you found out that not enough sleep really did you in.
0: Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and it's just not fun. I mean, regardless of whether or not you're going faster, um, you know, it's just not as fun. Sure. So I think that um, you really you really got to get to sleep because then you have a good time. And when you're having a good time, I think you go faster. So it, it works on both ends. Right,
2: right. Well, you already told us the story about coming to the end. And it, it just sounds amazing. But, you know, we can tell that you're exhausted at this point. You're tired. And um, you mentioned having this kind of this sense that your sister, right, would be there. hmm And uh, I've heard so many people talk about endurance racing, that it takes you to a place mentally that is not where you normally are, right? And some people describe it as a really good place. Some people describe it as, as kind of wild with, you know, hallucinations and everything mm-hmm. else. Did you have any experiences like that? No, no hallucinations. <laughs> <laughs> you I got mean, enough sleep then. Good for you. <laughs>
0: well, I mean, for me, the... Um the objective was to not like suffer. And so I, I really didn't want to push the whole sleep thing. I really did. not And that, that one all nighter, um, I shouldn't, I shouldn't even call it an all nighter because I did take a nap for maybe 45 minutes in a bathroom. Um, I I don't actually know how long it was, but anyway, so I did get even a little bit of sleep that night too. So no hallucinations.
2: (laughs) Well, that's good. Well, man, it sounds like it was an amazing race for you, and uh, y- you've got a, such a humble demeanor about it, but what you accomplished is no small feat, so congratulations. I think it's no, awesome. Yeah, and what do you think the key was to your success? If you were going to tell someone else who wants to do it and be competitive, what would be your advice be?
0: Well, um, I mean, it, it's not just one any one thing, right? So... Um, since I might do more of these, I don't want (laughs) to (laughs) like, don't give away all your secrets. (laughs) But, um, I mean, obviously keeping a positive attitude is, is super huge. I mean, that's, I mean, I don't really know what was going on with some of the other competitors, but, um, you know, if, if you let negativity creep in at any moment, uh, it's, it's really going to set you back if you want to get a good time and it's also going to take away from your fun. So really f- learn how to keep a positive attitude is probably the most important thing. And then, of course, you know, you got to train for it. You can't just like show up without training. But I think everyone knows that. Um, and then, of course, um, just having experience with bikepacking is, is useful. I think that can save you some time, you know, just practicing your bikepacking and, you know, going on little adventures and going places where it's not always easy. Sure.
2: Well, let's uh, briefly talk about your kit. Um, I, I think the big debate is whether or not to bring a sleeping bag, whether or not to bring some sort of a tent, you know, because okay. everyone's
0: trying to be as light as possible. What did you do? Well, everyone brings, I think everyone brings a sleeping bag. Although there was one kid who I talked to right at the beginning and he had no sleeping bags. I don't know what he did. Um, I would have loved to talk to this guy more, but we were in the middle of the race. So um, all he said was it always works out he <laughs> <laughs> He has a trick he doesn't want to tell, right, but like what do you do like you know i I was trying to hotel hop, but I mean, I still camped four nights and you know didn't camp, you know, rode through the night two nights, so that's six nights where there was no hotel, so I don't know what this guy did um but yeah, I carried everything, so I had a full tent, um you know two a two layer tent, so it was protected from the rain, um I didn't use it much. I tried to camp, like, uh, I camped at a post office one night when it was threatening to rain, and I camped under the awning of a school another night. Um, and for me, that was by design. I mean, that's not like, you know, rugged wilderness-type camping, which I prefer. But because this was a race, um, I knew that I could save time by not having to set up the tent. Oh, yeah. And um, I don't know. It, it, when you're racing, it's very different from like what you do when you're touring. So when you're touring, you're trying to be out like in the wilderness or somewhere where there's a really good view. You know, it's pretty and nice place where you can like cook your dinner and have a nice uh, kind of a relaxing evening. But when you're racing, you know, you're really thinking of practicality. So the post office was cool because they left the door unlocked and they had a kind of an awning. And so I just set up on the awning and then I figured, well, if it really starts to rain because, you know, there's lightning everywhere. So if it really starts to rain, I'll go inside the post office. Um, and the same thing with the church. They had like an awning. So that was nice to be under. No tent. Yeah, But I was carrying a tent. You so know, how we, heavy do you think your kit was? Um, well, the bicycle plus all the gear uh, minus water and minus food was 35 pounds. And that's pretty much as light as anybody else out there. Yeah, that's pretty, light. Yeah.
2: Your bike, let's say you were on a... Uh, an S work stump jumper. That's right. Hardtail.
0: So yeah. Wow, that's a light one. Nineteen pounds. It is. Yeah, and you know, it's kind of pushing the limit. Um, before the race, I was really worried about my spokes because it has a really low spoke count. Um, the front, the front wheel, I think, is eighteen or something. That's wow. really low. And I didn't think that that was a good idea, but um, I, it was what I had, you know, and I didn't want to go spending all this money on. Another set of wheels that was a little bit more robust. And in retrospect, I'm really happy because, you know, everything held up fine. I did have spare spokes just in case. But, yeah, 19 pounds is pretty light and for, you know, just for the base. And then, um, you know, I really didn't carry anything extra, you know. And I, actually, I take that back. I did carry things that I didn't need. Um, you know, I, I found out that I didn't need gloves. Hmm. Uh, gloves are a time waste. So, um, when you're taking off your jacket, they get caught in the jacket. Sure. When you're in the store, if you're trying to use your phone, you know, you need to take off your gloves. I'm constantly taking off my gloves. And I found that, you know, they don't keep your hands warm. I kind of knew that. Um, cause as soon as they get wet, they're probably worse. Um, I had made these things called plastic bag pogies. Right. Um, you know what pogies are? Sure. They go over the handlebars and kind of protect your yeah. hands. So I got that idea from this guy, Eddie O'Day, who actually was in the race this year. Um, he's won a bunch of stuff. He's super fast. Um, and somebody had asked him in an interview that was published online. They said, what's the one piece of gear that you couldn't live without? And he said, my plastic bag pogies. So I made these things. You know, they would cost like nothing. Right. And um, they were they were amazing. And so I could have easily substituted or gotten rid of the gloves and then just use these pogies I ended up losing them unfortunately but i lost them after it stopped being cold yeah that's pretty amazing actually
2: how much something like that can work even though it's open
0: yeah um, exactly. just
2: keeping your hand dry and blocking
0: the wind I and mean, that's everything that's right that's right yeah it was amazing so there are a few things you know i never use my arm warmers um a few things that i didn't use um but yeah, the, that kit I could probably get it down to 34 and still be safe. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Maybe even 33. Well, let's spend a little
2: bit of time because we're running out of time. I want to okay. hear about uh, touring on a tandem. First of um, all, what would be what would you say is the biggest advantage to being on a tandem bike?
0: Um, well, if you're touring, in, if you're touring, it's probably social. So, uh, people are really drawn to the tandem. It's kind of like a conversation piece. I mean, if you're just touring, um, people might come up and talk to you because you got your panniers, But if you're touring on a tandem, people are gonna really want to come talk to you. Mm. And it's it's been a really great um, icebreaker. You know, in thir- in lots of countries that we've traveled to. Um, we, we oftentimes give kids rides, you know, where I'll drive the tandem and a kid will jump on the, the back and they'll, uh, you know, they love it. <laughs> they get to pedal and, and see what it's like. So I, I think that that's a really big advantage. Um, the other huge advantage is that we're never separated. And, you know, for some couples that might not be a good thing. <laughs> um, but for us, it's, it's great. I mean, we love being together and um, she's, you know. She's very patient because I I talk a lot about like things that she's probably not interested in, but.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I've always wondered how much efficiency is gained because, I mean, the one tandem weighs a little less than two separate bikes. You have less wind mm-hmm. drag because mm-hmm. the person in the front is breaking the wind for the person behind and you have two people pedaling. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like a little bit more than one person's wind drag, but with twice the pedal mm-hmm. power. So is yeah. that a,
0: a marked improvement? Um, on our, we, so we have actually three tandems. Um, on our, we have a road racing tandem. And on that tandem, absolutely. So, I mean, we can go faster on that tandem when it's flat than, or downhill than we can on our individual bikes. Mm. So, cool. yeah, yeah, it kicks butt. But um, when it comes to touring, you know, once we fully load that thing, it's 105 pounds. And if there is a difference, I don't notice it. Mm, okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't feel like there's an advantage in any way. But, you know, for, for Janet, she's um, a slower rider than I am. So still, we're together. So um, I can't say that on touring, we go faster than we would on our individual bikes, totally, because um, it's harder to handle, especially on dirt. Right. But we're together. Sure, which is fun.
2: Now, this is really a novice question, but hopefully someone else out there is asking the same question. When you're pedaling, um, can you input your energy independent from each other,
0: or do you have to have the same pace? Um, On these bikes, you have to have the same pace. They do make a bike. um, I think it's called uh, Da Vinci. Da Vinci makes a bike where the riders can pedal independently, you know, at your own cadence. But on almost all tandems, it's you have to have the same cadence. You can, of course, input different amounts of power, but the revolutions per minute is going to be the same. And that's kind of
2: why I asked, because if you have a strong rider and a weak rider, and I'm not calling either of you strong or weak, but mm-hmm. if you had a really weak rider, they could be dragging against your efficiency, not helping, right? Right. That's Well, yeah. You don't want to talk about that. Do
0: you, want your, do you want your tandem relationship to continue?
2: Well, and that's why I kind of brought that up, right? I mean, you have to come to terms with it somehow, right?
0: Right. Well, I mean, I I made this mistake um, in the past. You, you never ask, "Are you pedaling?" <laughs> you, <never, laughs> you never say that. I mean, even if you feel that way, um, that's a that's a quick way to end your tandem relationship. So yeah, don't don't ever ask that. Even if you think it. (laughs) You know, well, what's cool about it is that it really means you guys
2: are a team. Yeah. And I think that when two people come together and they're pedaling together and you know, you have the same, the same cadence. Yeah. Then it it joins you even more than just being on one bike and being close enough to visit and not getting separated. I mean, you're kind of like one organism at that point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Well,
2: that's fun. So you would recommend tandems then for touring? Um, Well,
0: I think they're a blast, but, you know, some people, uh, you know, we have friends and they talk about the tandem a lot and a lot of couples say, I could never ride a tandem with, you know, my partner. And, um, usually we say why? And they'll say, well, because, you know, so-and-so is a control freak or, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't think it's going to work for every couple. Um, but, you know, Janet's definitely not a control freak and she's willing to trust me as the driver. Um, which by the way, usually the taller, heavier person goes in the front, so they're mm-hmm. the driver. Okay. So, I mean, if she were taller than me and heavier, then she would be the driver. Um, but you know, usually the guy's in the front because usually they're heavier, and that just makes the handling way better. So, um, yeah, I mean, some people say they can do it, and you know, they, They do great, and then other couples, they don't even try because they know that they won't do it. Wow. Well, man, we've covered a lot of information on the show
2: today. Kind of did a little bit about just general bike touring, talked about the whole tandem thing. I loved your insights and recommendations for doing this kind of stuff with type 1 diabetes. I think that that's so valuable. And uh, I also enjoyed just hearing about the race. So Mm -hmm. congratulations again for winning the Tour divide race two thousand seventeen very, very yeah, cool, thank thank yeah, well, thanks also for your time for being on the show today.
0: yeah, it was cool. I enjoyed it, thank you
2: well, and for all the listeners out here, you know, I always say get out there and have some fun and and I do mean it, and it's so cool to hear about the variety of ways that you can do things to do a race like this as a preview of a trail you might want to go back to, you know or to ride a tandem bike so you're, you're in sync with someone the whole time. Or not, so you have more independence, you know? And to, to realize that you can bike, tour, and race at the same time if you'd like to. I think all of it's just so much fun. And I, I just really encourage you, find what your sport is. It may not even be a bike, but whatever it is, find it, get outside the door, do it. It'll make your life better. Thanks again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. And get out there and have some fun.
1: Coming up on Thursday's episode, we've got Jim Lemancusa talking about skiing Mount Rainier. Until then, get out and have some fun.